Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of Keyhole Conversations. On this episode, I am going to be switching roles once again, being interviewed more so by Alex Heinerman, my good friend, who is out in the plain old area of Nebraska. And he's going to be asking me some questions, and we're going to do some discussion on mental health because I myself, um, this is the time of year, November where my mental health starts to slowly erode and um, it can begin to fall apart in pieces because for the longest time um, I've suffered from not like depression. It's not like a yearly depression. I mean, I do deal with the ups and downs um, like generalized life, but I wouldn't say I wouldn't diagnose myself as like clinically depressed, but the seasonal adaptive disorder, um, SAD, or people, it's got many names, winter blues, uh, seasonal depression, all that, that stuff comes on very hard for me in November. And I made a little post on uh, my Instagram and Facebook accounts about reaching out to some people to talk about mental health this month. And so this is kind of like the theme of this month's episodes. And I have people uh, queued up to be coming on the podcast and talking about mental health, but I figured why not starting about talking about my own mental health challenges and rather than just sit here and talk about them just myself, have someone actually be in on the conversation with us. So I asked Alex to do that. So Alex is joining us today and he's going to ask us some questions and we're going to see how this conversation goes. So hello, Alex. Hi, Marcus. And just so everyone knows, Alex and I are podcasting, but from totally separate states right now, we're not in the same room. So if sometimes it seems awkward, it kind of is because we have to almost anticipate and have a conversation without looking right at each other, which is always hard, but we're going to make it work. Or are we? We're going to, we're going to try our hardest. I've, I've made them work in the past pretty well. Um, I always enjoy like having the guest on the show sitting right across from me because it's so much. I, I don't think people realize how much we communicate with body language and just facial expressions and things of that nature. Doing it over a phone uh, interview is a lot more difficult. So don't get me started on language. So uh, I would immediately change the subject because I could talk for hours about language. <laughs> well, that's that's cool. We'll we'll save language for another time and another place. But Alex has got some uh, kind of questions that we kind of went over that he's going to ask me, and he's going to kind of um, flow that way, and I'm just going to answer, and we're going to have a conversation about mental health in the month of November. So Alex, what do you got for me first? So I noticed that you said that this is when you like to talk about mental health. Uh, is it specifically because of your seasonal affective disorder? Is that the reason why you think that November is the time that you enjoy talking about this? Maybe it's when you are most aware of it, but uh, I guess maybe what's the reason why? Kind of curious. Because no, so November, so I am such a Halloween horror movie fall addict type person. Like I love that season, but that season also cues up this thing inside of me that it's like a, a countdown that I know eventually that Halloween's going to end and all the excitement from that season and the endorphins and all the happy chemicals that I get from, um, being in the Halloween, October, fall mood are going to start to fall away. And I'm going to have to once again, face the concepts and aspects and ideas that I'm going to, get, for lack of a better term, kind of fall off my happy high horse and go down into the mud for a while. And I see that a lot of people can have that same problem as winter hits. And I know there's a lot of scientific reasons for that. Less sunlight. It's kind of funny that we're doing this episode today where we had daylight savings time happen. So we just turned the clocks back an hour, which is also very effective to me because I'm now getting off work and it's basically all of my light is deple depleted because it's dark by the time I get off work. So I like to talk about um, mental health and bring it up in November to remind people that are out there that might not know 
um, specifically about uh, the season changes and how that can affect your moods. Um, but to also let people know that if they are struggling, like I do myself, that you're not doing it alone. I think that's one of the most important things to realize. And one thing that helped me a lot, um, realizing that depression is not a, a demon or a, a battle that you're doing on your own, but, but you are like, you're battling your own depression on your own, but there are other people going through the same thing with you. So in that aspect, it's not just some odd thing that's only happening to you and you're the only one that feels this way. And I remember a couple months ago or a couple years ago, rather, um, I had decided to do a photo challenge every month. So I did a photo challenge for a year, took a picture every day for a whole year. And then I did one um, in a year, but it was in a month to month base. And for the month of November, I got thinking about mental health and all that. And I did a a challenge where um, I challenged myself to get out there and communicate with people who had um, mental health disorders, take a photo of them and have them in their words, write what that challenge was to them. And that helped me realize, you know, a lot about other individuals and about my own mental health. And that's why I kind of decided to do it again, but in the podcasting format. Um, but I always, you know, I always notice in November, that's when I start to have that seasonal depression creep in. And a huge factor for that is people around me will start to notice that as well. They will, you know, notice uh, subtle changes in my mood. And then they'll ask me what's going on with you. And then I kind of have to explain to them, you know, I go through this every year. It's a, it's a, it's a battle, but I go through it every year. So that's why I've, chosen the month of November to talk about these things. Now, do you feel that it's just seasonal affective disorder or do you feel like there's other aspects of mental health that you find yourself struggling with? Maybe not so much in November, but you know, just in general, because of course seasonal affective is something different than what we call unipolar depression. That would be kind of the depression most people think about when they think about depression um, but it does exist in its own little environment. So I'm just kind of curious if you have any other things that you're aware of and does it compound any of those problems? You know, so I have on and off battled with, um, anxiety. Anxiety was a huge thing in my life from probably the age of like seven or eight up to, you know, the age of 33, where I started to notice these, uh, feelings of angst and, and fear so anxiety is something that I can battle throughout a year or throughout certain periods of time. And that one's weird because I will go months without feeling anxious and then all of a sudden it will creep in. And um, I currently, I take a, a medication to help mitigate my anxiety, which works really well, but which I also find myself falling prey to the whole concept of medications that, because the last time I was on a medication for my anxiety. I was like, Oh, I feel better now. I'm going to stop taking this medication. Well, what a lot of people don't realize is what well, the medication's probably making you feel better now. Don't stop taking it. Um, and then I went back to being extremely anxious all the time, but then I got back on a medication to help me. And, um, so that's, that's one thing I suffer from is from anxiety. Um, but I don't really get or know of that. I've been, suffering with any other mental health ailments. I mean, I might have a little like OCD tendencies and things here and there. Um, sometimes I can get some slight uh, depression throughout the year, but it doesn't, it, I would attribute that to just to being like slightly depressed, like getting the blues. But when the seasonal depression stuff comes on, I mean, I've talked with my doctor about this for years and it's something that's like in my medical file I was having because another thing I don't like doing is I don't like self-diagnosing myself with anything. I don't want to sit here and say, you know, play WebMD and say, oh, yep, I definitely got that without actually getting a professional source of confirmation on that. And I think that's something that a lot of people can also um, fall prey to is like the self-diagnosis of a mental health issue without actually being diagnosed with it. 
And I mean, I'm not saying it's bad to look into your mental health, but before you just full blow diagnose yourself with something, I think you should get a professional opinion on it. But me, the two that I've been professionally diagnosed with um, is the seasonal adaptive disorder, seasonal depression, and the uh, generalized anxiety. So that brings up one of my favorite things to talk about uh, with the people I work with, not just the teachers and doctors I work with, but also, you know, the students, obviously, is the aspect of the online mental health community. And one of the things that we don't think about when it comes to things like group therapy is group therapy can lead mental illness to being a competition. Whereas you think you're depressed. Well, here's what I have. You're not depressed because I have it worse. And that's one of the ongoing concerns you just talked about self-diagnosis. It's not just self-diagnosis, but then people who offer medical advice with that self-diagnosis. So it's a pretty dangerous game that you, you plural, not you specifically, but you plural can get involved in with the online self-diagnosis, getting help from other people. And it can lead to a lot of other potential pitfalls and issues. So I'm really glad you brought that up. That's one of my huge pet peeves. Uh, is seeing people openly tell me that they've, you know, been diagnosed with something. Oh, well, I just know it. I not a formal diagnosis. My favorite is antisocial personality disorder because that's not where you don't want to be social. Uh, that's like what lunatics and serial killers have. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was, I've been diagnosed as a little bit antisocial. I'm like, well, I would correct you, but you'll turn me into a skin lamp if I do. So I won't. Uh, <laughs> yeah, no, and you're you're totally right because there is there's such a um there's a stigma about mental health that I think is slowly being taken down by the social media aspect where people are starting to be more accepting of people's uh mental health illnesses, but there's also a pitfall in the social media aspect, uh, one which you just explained uh gr- greatly is you do like and I see that all the time with the the kind of the competition, like some people I almost think, think it's cool to have more mental health problems. And that's like, no, that's not how this goes. So I, I myself, when like people ask for advice or something um, to deal with their mental health, I will only give them on advice on like things that if they come out and they personally reach out to me, like, Hey, Marcus, like through a phone call or in passing, and they know I suffer from something and they're like, what do you do to help? But I don't ever try and formally like give unsolicited advice or even like online advice because I'm not a doctor. And then you always get someone else that says something and it just turns into this big, you know, thread of comments with people who are just trying to one up each other, people that are trying to be the doctor, people that are trying to downplay issues. And uh, that that is one that I um, I kind of get annoyed with as well. Is like I'll constantly see people like I'll say I might have OCD tendencies, but I'll never say like I'm diagnosed OCD because I have worked with individuals in the past that have had OCD, and um, the diagnosed clinical OCD versus someone who just says I oh, know I have OCD. It's like I don't I don't think that's what you have. Like they have a much harder problem than actually been diagnosed with this than you have. So I like this because this leads me to uh, one of my favorite things to talk about. Uh, not just like I said, with people in the field, but uh, even my students is I know you're very passionate about mental health. What is your mental health pet peeve? Do you have one? I always tell my students they need to leave my class with some sort of pet peeve about the perception or some aspect of mental health. In general, pretty broad term there. But I'm just curious if you have an aspect that maybe you are, uh, you have some sort of pet peeve with. Uh, My pet peeve of like the mental health problem across them. I got two pet peeves. One, I think, I don't know if it would be a, the lack of attention it gets in a good way from our own government officials and resources for mental health. Um and people struggling with it, but like a pet peeve that I see just like in the online community is just that self-diagnosis stuff that, that stuff drives me crazy. Like, like you say, um, another one is, Oh, I've got, you know, antisocial disorder or whatever you call that. See, like people will 
latch onto terms and diagnoses because they form words and phrases that fit to them. But I'm like, that, you know, that is something that needs to be done by a professional. There's a reason doctors go to school for years and years and study these disorders and psychologists and psychiatrists and all this thing and all of this. And us as the general public have a very surface level understanding of it. But I think we as the general public sometimes like to deem ourselves as experts in the in the field even and even if you're like professionally diagnosed and have a disorder you know i think you should be very wary about giving too much advice to someone because their problem may be different from yours you know it's it's like mechanics you know a car has a problem there's so many underlying problems to the main problem. Like you take it to a mechanic. You don't, I mean, you can go Google online how to fix it and end up screwing up your car even more. Right. That's, um, so my pet peeve is always, and it was the reason I brought this up because, because you actually kind of touched on it when people confuse anal retentive with OCD. Cause when you meet someone who has OCD, it's very, well, I guess there's multiple forms of OCD, but especially things like fear of danger, and that was what got me to have that be my pet peeve was we did something for one of my classes and we met a very young girl who had the stereotypical, I have to turn the lights on and off because I'm worried about the lights being left on and starting a fire. And this girl would do like a light switch, light switch flip roughly once a minute. And it's just so hard to watch somebody who washes their hands till the skin starts to come off or who have to take several steps backwards because they have such a need for symmetry when they're moving. Then there's one of your friends who says, well, my movies have to look in a certain order on the shelf. I'm so OCD about the way that my DVDs are arranged or some nonsense like that. Yeah. The stuff on my desk has to, to look a certain way because I have OCD. No, no, you don't. You are anal retentive and apparently also need attention. So. <laughs> no, I would totally agree. And then I, and I, I suffer from something because I am someone who likes to be neat, organized, and clean. And I don't think there's anything in my neat, organized, clean world that I do that has anything to do with OCD, but I'll get people that will label me as, oh God, Marcus, you're just so OCD. I'm like, no, I'm not. I like to, I don't like my fucking room to look like a rat race. Like I'm not OCD or you're such a germaphobe. And I'm like, I I would say I'm germ aware. I like to wash my hands before I eat. That's it. Like I'm not, you know, and people like to throw out blanket terms on people. And it just, that, that can be kind of frustrating and infuriating. Yeah. It, it's a, again, with that whole self-diagnosis, the aspect of online reinforcement, uh, one of the dangers kind of that goes with that is when you tell someone, Hey, I'm OCD and they go, Oh, okay. And there's no kind of check or regulation to that. Cause you're just doing it online or saying it casually. There's nothing there to not reinforce that behavior, that belief. So what that ends up doing is making people continue to think that they have that disorder. And it's, it's, it sucks. Cause then they just continue to spread poor information online. And, you know, and this might sound very bad of me too, but sometimes I think people self-diagnose and use like phrases for excuses of being assholes. Like I've literally come across that before. Like I just act this way because I have antisocial personality disorder. And I'm like, so I don't ever remember you being diagnosed with this. Now I don't, and some of these individuals, I'm not going to name them, but I'm like, I never think you had that. I think you're just taking a term and using it because sometimes you can be a pretty big jerk to people. Right. And like I've said, that one is, I wouldn't say it's a pet peeve, but it's one that makes me laugh because again, someone who has antisocial personality disorder is someone who wants to use other people and then completely disregard them. Like that's what, that's the uh, line of mental illness that psychopaths and sociopaths are on. Again, people say, I'm rude because I'm, I have antisocial personality disorder. What they mean to say is, I'm not a very sociable person or I don't like talking to people. But instead, they have to make up some sort of lie which makes them even come off even worse than they would otherwise. It's like, oh, you're an asshole and a liar. Okay, <laughs> those, those two usually coincide with each other, don't they? <laughs> and, 
and this isn't to say like I always try to tote the line very carefully because I think it's very important to bring about conversation with mental health in regards to it because I think it's very good to have conversations about it because once again I've always been the one that like I'm I'm an open book I always uh, try to share my battles with everything in my life with everybody because I think it's a good example to people to let them know that we're not all perfect and we all suffer from things but then again on that same token I try not to uh, give huge amounts of advice when it comes to mental health I just try and share my story because that is one way that uh, actually helps me with with my own um, mental health challenges is seeing what other people go through because then I can semi-relate. And like I was saying earlier, I can feel like, oh, okay, this isn't just in my head. This person feels that way as well. So comment boards, groups, and things like that, they can be very good, but they can also be very uh dangerous in their own right as well. And I, I always think that people should always revert back to the professional medical community with diagnoses and treatments and try not to self-diagnose uh, and self-treat and isolate in in that way or just take, you know, the advice from the man down the street and he knows it all. But I mean, what do I know? I'm just a layman person as well. Okay, so kind of piggybacking off of um, what you just said in your own mental health, uh, I guess a good kind of jumping off question to go kind of into a new direction would be, you know, when did you really start to notice this change? I know you mentioned feeling anxiety when you were seven. Um, Any other moments or time frames that you can think of when your mental health was Maybe not at its worst, that might not be the best way to think about it, but when it became something you were very cognizant of. So I think back and when I really started to notice some uh, problems with me um, was probably the anxiety probably reared its head first. So like I was always the kid that I was never very popular in elementary school. It wasn't until uh, junior high that I actually started to gain friendships and things of that nature. I always got picked on in elementary school. And I think that helped feed my anxiety. I had a huge problem with uh, public speaking, which is odd because now I do that as part of my job. I speak in front of groups from anywhere from two people to 200 people and I can do it just fine. But if you would have told me that 15, 20 years ago, I'd been like, no, because like giving presentations in front of classes and things like that made me feel utterly sick. I would call off uh, school and fake sick when I knew there was a presentation that had to be uh, given in front of the class. And I would just fail that subject in elementary school, junior high and high school. I kind of started to come into my own and push my way through those, but still suffered greatly from like that fear of public speaking. And then other anxieties would kind of manifest themselves inside of me, such as um, I was a terrible, uh, I was terrible at like performative exams, like anything that was like a mandible test where you're, you're like, actually having to perform a skill or if like it was like play guitar in front of all these people, things like that would also make me very anxious. And then um, when I was a teenager, well, actually before I was a teenager, I started to get a big fear of doctor's offices and things like that. And um, I kind of got that hypochondria bug and that white coat syndrome, which still to this day uh, kind of lingers in the back of my head like whenever I go into a general practitioner or something and they take my blood pressure it's always higher than when I take it at like Smith's or the house just because healthcare facilities always freak me out and I always I always take that one back to a time that I think my mother damaged me very mentally and didn't even realize she did I had a little like tooth infection and Um, I remember she was using a water pick to try and get it out and it was very painful. And I was like, you know, crying and whining about this. And she told me, you need to stop it. You need to let me use this because if I can't get it out, we're going to have to take you into the hospital. And when you go into the hospital, you're just going to die. 
And I think that put in the fear in my little brain of like hospitals equal death all the time. So now I guess that's what started that. Um, and then like, you know, in uh, high school, I had convinced myself I had contracted um, HIV and was super anxious about this and went to my doctor and told them that I needed all these uh, these uh, HIV tests. And he was like, why? And he's because I had unprotected sex and uh, this these are the symptoms because I would like symptom check and I would go down the rabbit hole with that stuff. And that was when he officially my first doctor officially diagnosed me with general anxiety disorder um, and put me on medication, which I am so happy I'm not on the medication he put me on back in that day. He, uh, God, I think I was like 18 or 19 when I went on this medication. It was, um, it was a benzo. It was uh, clonazepam, one milligram twice a day. And I think, I don't think people really understand the dangers of benzodiazepines but they're very habit forming. They're very mind numbing. And I remember I hated the way they made me feel. And he had me on one milligram twice a day, which I'm no medical professional, but I think that's pretty high. Maybe that's standard. But I actually quit those after about four months and I quit them cold turkey, which is not a way you're supposed to quit a benzo at all. It's very dangerous. Um, I didn't didn't use my medical professional to get off them. I was just like, I don't like how these make me feel. I feel like a zombie. I'm stopping them. Um, but then through that, there was trial and error with medications throughout my past, you know, years. But I'd say I really started to notice my seasonal depression stuff come on after high school. Um, when I got out of high school, that was a time when I was like, okay, I'm now in the adult world and I'm now in the working class and life is not what I thought it was going to be getting into this. And I would, I would suffer very harshly when wintertime came around. And I think I was, oh, I must've been like 23. I think I was 23 when I went to my doctor and was like, Hey, I have like no energy right now. I am very in the dumps. Explained all this stuff. And that's when he kind of was like, hey, have you ever heard of uh, sad? And I'm like, yeah, I've heard of being sad. He's like, no, sad. He's like seasonal depression, seasonal adaptive disorder, seasonal adjustment disorder. You know, it's like, no, I've never heard of this. And he, that's when he kind of talked to me about it. And uh, the rest is history. But being able to recognize it and get a like diagnosis of it helped me immensely going forward. I don't know if that was a long-winded answer for a very simple question. <laughs> no, you're, you're totally fine. And I think one of the things that you brought up that uh, needs to kind of be reiterated was that idea of this medication didn't work and you had to try something else. One of the things that even tying back to something you talked about before, which was being able to help more people with mental illnesses, you talked about like the, you know, like, government helping out. Uh, one of the things that's very difficult is there are so many different things that can cause mental illness from the way that you think, from life events in general, uh, an inability to alter the way that you think to lack of various neurotransmitters. And a lot of people, when they hear neurotransmitters, they think, oh yeah, serotonin is my mood. And it turns out it's actually neuronepinephrine, dopamine, and serotonin. They all kind of work together. And what ends up happening is when you suppress one, so if you stop the production of something like serotonin, then you actually increase production of those other two to kind of compensate. And kind of a great example of that is low levels of serotonin, <clears throat> excuse me, leading to high levels of dopamine and norepinephrine, which is what makes bipolar so dangerous. That's actually what's going on in a manic state, which would cause somebody to act as if they're invincible or have that thing in their brain that doesn't tell them, you know, you have these crazy thoughts, you have these impulsive thoughts in your head all the time. Everybody does. Like, I wonder what happened if I swerved into the other lane. And then you have that thing. No, don't do that. That's stupid. Uh, some with bipolar in a manic state can't do that because they don't have the serotonin to help with that aspect of critical thought. And so kind of tying that back to medication, whenever you stop 
or raise some sort of neurotransmitter production, it does alter other neurotransmitters, which have other effects. And so one of the things that's very difficult when you hear someone in the general public say, well, we just have to do better at looking at mental health. The answer is, yeah, great. Okay. What next? And then you're just kind of met with awkward silence because it's a very difficult answer to, to find when your brain is just so temperamental when it comes to how it absorbs different neurotransmitters, how it transports certain neurotransmitters. Like it's not just the production of serotonin in your stomach and intestines, but how it's transported from your intestines to your brain or the other parts of your body that use it. There's so many different caveats that go into mental health. And unfortunately it's up against something like if you break a bone, put the bone in a cast, boom, fixed. So uh, that struggle that you're talking about is one that I think is very, very common. And we kind of have a hard time rationalizing why that might be. And that's the biggest thing is medications. Uh, it's not that they don't work. It's that your body adapts to them differently based off of your genetics, your environment, and everything kind of in between. Try not to go on a huge semi-related rant here. I'm trying to keep it on on track. Do you ever think that medications are almost kind of blanketly Get, uh, given out and other forms of therapy and treatment are not as focused on do you ever like maybe have an opinion on that like because I know a lot of people for a long time a lot of people that I've talked to that have suffered from depression and I've been on an SSRI as well a serotonin selective uptake inhibitor or re what's that stand for SSRI something like that yeah, and I that's one that was kind of like people go to the doctor and they're like, take this, take this, take this. And I'm not trying to discount the medical professionals, but sometimes I wonder if they go to or we're going to certain medications a little bit too frequently and not uh, advising other people of other um, routes they could take. Because, you know, my doctor... I have a new doctor now, my past doctor retired, but I always thought he kind of just, instead of talking to me a lot about the issues, he more just threw medication at me and correct me if I'm not, if I'm wrong, but haven't SSRIs now been looked at in studies and things to almost having no effectiveness towards depression or a very different effectiveness than they thought? Oh, wow. You're opening up a huge can of worms here. Okay. So the first thing that you asked, and if I forget something, by all means, you are welcome to jump in and, and correct me. Uh, one of the things you talked about was the uh, reasons for giving things out. And one of the things that we don't tend to think about are, uh, first, is the cost. There is actually a foolproof way of looking at your mental health. Do you know what it is? We, I mean, it's the live all be all. We can tell you everything that's wrong with your, your brain for the most part. I shouldn't say live all be all, but very, very, very accurate way of looking at mental illness and mental health. Do you know what it is? Uh, I would have no idea, but I'm going to take a guess and gander that whatever it is, is highly cost prohibitive. <laughs> yes. So you could have an fMRI and an EEG done. Uh, and that looks at brain activity, looks at brain structure, looks at how your brain parts talk to each other. Uh, those are thousands upon thousands upon thousands of dollars. And so one of the big things is a lot of people, uh, because mental health is something that's cost prohibitive, just like everything else, your food, your vehicle, your hobbies, these are all things that are reliant on your money. And for many, it's seen as extra income. And so that can be one of the downsides is how the money is used. So you might just go to a generalized specialist, you again, plural, not you specifically. So one might go to a generalized specialist to kind of save money, or maybe that's just what their health insurance covers. So that's always something we have to keep in mind is the cost of not just going to seek help, but also get help. Cognitive behavioral therapies are incredibly, incredibly expensive. One of the groups that's hit really hard with this are people who have kids who uh, obviously turn into adults who struggle with severe forms of autism. Because the best treatments are these one-on-one -on -one treatments, but the cost is so high for these families and these kids. And it's not just because it, you know, it's this ongoing process, but the training and the specialization, everything that goes into it is 
something that is again cost it's a cost a lot it, it's uh, it's an inhibitor because the expenses so unfortunately for many of us our mental health is kind of a quick cheap fix and so that's one of the big downsides is people just going to see somebody who's going to just fix me i have a problem i need to have it solved with whatever is cheapest so i guess a good comparison would be uh if you have to have a bit you're having a big cookout for uh, your your family you're probably going to go to Walmart or your local grocery store and even then buying whatever's on sale or even the house brand stuff to eat than going to a posh place like a you know Whole Foods or someplace where the food is fresh and and, and you know not inexpensive uh the next thing to think about is how much you know, SSRIs actually impact us. Uh, serotonin plays a role in not just things like mood, but it plays a role in things like your sleep-wake cycles, your hunger cycles, your body temperature, your heart rate, your digestion cycles. It has its hands in so many different pots that it's kind of like if you call tech support, the first thing they do is ask you to unplug your computer and plug it back in. In many cases, that's what SSRIs are like. Because it is such a, not a fix-all, but it has its hands in so many different pots, it's a good way of weeding out some of those potential problems. And then finally, things to think about are biases, not just in the doctors, because many doctors will give medications, especially if you go to someone who is not trained in cognitive behavioral therapy. Like if you went to a psychiatrist, their job is medication, a lot of people think they go to a psychiatrist to talk to, you know, I'm going to find someone to talk to and talk about my mental health problems. Psychiatrists go to medical school. They don't go and get the basic training in psychology and stop there. They get that training and they go to medical school and have the ability to do things like write prescriptions. And so that's kind of like what their job is, for lack of a so better term. That is, that is someone who's trained in psychiatry versus psychology, correct? Yes. Yeah, so a psychiatrist will have a background in psychology, but they're also going to medical school. And so it would be like you go to a place where everything they make is super sugary. Like you go to a bakery and you, you know, order a cake. You're like, well, this cake is really sugary. Well, yeah, you went to the, the bakery that specializes in very sugary cakes. Uh, or like, <laughs> I guess a better comparison of sugary cakes would be like those cheap ass cookies you get at the grocery store that come in the plastic clamshell those uniform pink cookies that are just sugar on top of sugar. Yeah. Like those are so incredibly sweet. Not every single cookie or every, even every single sugar cookie you get is like that. But if you go get cookies and those are the ones you buy, you're always going to get overly sugary sweets. So if you're constantly, again, plural you constantly going to psychiatrists and wondering why they're writing medications, it's because you're going to psychiatrists. That's kind of what their specialty is. And then the last thing that I'll add is, so I said there's bias in the person that you're going to, but there's also bias inherent in the person giving responses. There are certain things when people go for therapy, even if they're just talking, that they're not aware there are things they should be talking about. Maybe they're not aware that it's even a problem, or maybe it's something that's really embarrassing. It can be very awkward for people to talk about their sexual history with someone that they've never met, or their feelings of feeling worthless, even though that's why they're there. It can be things that are embarrassing for people to talk about. So in some cases, it's who you go to. In some cases, it's what you care to share. And then again, at that point, if you're going with medication, it's trial and error at you know some sort of a cost, whether it's time, whether it's your mental health, whether it's literal money. These are all things that kind of factor into mental health. And that's what makes that puzzle so difficult to kind of pick apart when we say, hey, we need to improve mental health. The school shooting happens. Improve mental health. Okay, great. How do we do that? Well, you know, with, you know, better mental health. Okay, great. How do you do that? Because it's such a big, complex puzzle. You know, I kind of want to touch on what you just kind of said, because I think it's wholly important that people understand when you are seeking medical help or mental health help, which would be medical help in itself, um, to share with the professionals that you're working with. I mean, this was me. I would say share everything, but you're so right. Some of us are so ashamed to share certain aspects of our life. Like 
We're almost afraid our doctor is going to judge us in one way or another. And I just, I find it funny, like, and I think a lot of people do this. They'll go to the doctor or something and you fill out that questionnaire and it will be like smokers or drinkers. Do you drink? Yes. How many drinks do you have? And inevitably, like I know when I was a drinker, I'd always put less than I actually knew I was drinking. I'm like, why am I doing this? Is it because I'm afraid of what my doctor's going to think of me? But he needs the more accurate representation to be more soundly uh, making more sound choices for me in my health. But here I'm giving him inaccurate uh, information right on this stupid health form because I have some pre notion that my doctor's going to treat me differently if I fill that form out one way or the other. Well, and I think along that same lines is that it can be really scary to, you know, when you have, I wouldn't say your medical history out in front of you, but when you have all of your problems lined up, it can almost be very daunting, very scary. And you might fear what they're going to tell you. And that is definitely something that should be kept in mind too, is, you know, that's the reason you're there. You're there to get better. Um, whether it's something like feeling worse about yourself mentally, or if it's a legal aspect, you know, one of the reasons why they ask about, you know, things like your substance abuse history, it's not because your doctor wants to have you arrested for doing like heroin or whatever. It's because medications will actually cause adverse effects to that. So you like, you wouldn't fight if someone is, has substance abuse problems, you wouldn't give them medication because you don't know how that medication is going to act with the illicit substances they take. But if you're worried that your doctor is going to rat you out to the man, then you might be a bit more secretive with what you write down. So those are all things that we do have to consider in the mental health field, uh, especially when we are the ones on the other side of the table and we're filling out the, filling out the paperwork. And again, sometimes it's just hard to know what you're supposed to write down. So you might feel like, you know, when it comes to getting sleep, well, you know, I like to stay up late. I feel more productive late at night and I have to wake up early to do all these other things. And so, yeah, well, I'm getting the normal amount of sleep that I would get in any other situation. So my sleep's not a problem. People might just not write down that they're having problems sleeping. So sometimes it is embarrassment. Sometimes it is just pure ignorance of what the mental illness entails. So those are some really important things to keep in mind when it comes to analyzing mental health. Yeah, I didn't even think about um, that very important factor that you just kind of shared that maybe someone who is using illegal substances are worried that their doctor would turn them into the the police or the authorities or something along those lines. And I don't know where the legality stands with things of that nature. I would highly doubt that if you were a heroin addict or a PCP or methamphetamine, whatever, and you were in a doctor's office that they would uh, tell the authorities about your usage if you put it on a piece of paper. But I mean, I don't know. But my assumption would be that's your medical records. HIPAA laws would protect you uh, in the long run against anything like that. But who, who am I to say otherwise? But I didn't even think about people fearing legal repercussions from their medical oh, yeah. history. Yeah, man, it's it's a huge, huge thing that is something that is constantly worried about when giving some sort of prescription medication. Because even things like alcohol can have adverse effects on medications. Uh, the, I mean, it's so weird. Medications can be so particular. Some medications even work better based off of what your sex is. And that's a whole other argument that uh, people who uh, write down something different than what their biological sex is in the medical field. Like, again, that whole online internet culture... Uh, kind of can give people false information. Um, so there's so many caveats that go into that. That's a whole other argument for another day. I'm going to try and keep it on subject. Um, but as we're talking about things like medications, um, you've been talking a little bit about the medications that you've taken, but what are some of the other things that maybe you've done and even continue to do that maybe aren't medication related? Because I think it's easy to just say, yeah, I took, I'm taking medication and People go, oh, cool, medication. But what, maybe some things that you do to help improve your mental health during when, you know, during SAD, during the rest of the year. What are things that you do to kind of help with your particular concerns and issues with your mental health? 
Yeah. So I've, you know, I've always been very careful when it comes to medications because there is a substance abuse uh, history within my family history. So even like pain medications and things like that, I always like, I remember when I got my tonsils out, they wanted to give me, um, they, what did they prescribe me? Like Oxycontin and Percocet, one of the two. And I was very careful about taking those. I think I took like one or two and then the rest of them I just chucked through away because I didn't, I was like, I don't need this high dose pain medication because that's a art, uh, that's a whole nother subject for another day. But in that I've always been, I've always tried to tell my doctors, you know, I, I prefer other means than medication, but sometimes medication is needed to help. So I have used medication, but um, in the other forms of helping my mental health. Um, so my let's tackle anxiety first, because anxiety is one that I've actually noticed such an improvement um, with my anxiety and partly uh, due to medication. But I think wholeheartedly a lot of my anxiety has been cured from uh, one journaling. I've been doing a lot of journaling lately um, for about the past six months to a year. And that helps me because I get all of my thought processes out on a piece of paper and writing them out and getting to look at them helps me um, digest things better in the form of like, why am I anxious about this? And then writing it down and seeing the problem. You know how they kind of say like um, trying to remember things for tests and things. You can write it out five times or do it this way, say it five times. Like you try and get your brain involved in it in different ways and it will help. Well, that kind of helps me with my anxiety is looking at the problem in different ways and why is it causing me fear or angst. So journaling helps me out a lot. Um, also keeping my mind busy and active. I, ex I especially like during the summer months, I'm an avid hiker. I'm avid outdoors. I'm always on the move, but in the winter months, some of those activities are harder to do just because the nature of living in Utah, you can have a lot of snow come in, but I've tried to look at like those things that would block me from doing outdoor activities, not blocking me doing them. Just they're another hurdle I have to go through. Like you're still going to go outside. You're just gonna have to deal with the snow, but it keeps my mind active and keeps me on my hobbies, such as photography, exploration, and even doing podcasts because you know, they say the devil's uh, idle hands are the devil's playground. Well, I think an idle mind is a mental health crisis playground because then you get your, in your own head with ideas and things. So if I'm busy and productive, that seems to help. And um, finally, it was uh, COVID. I stopped going to the gym during COVID. I got very... Uh, lackadaisical. I was like, Oh, I don't want to go get sick and I don't want to catch this COVID virus. So I'm staying out of the gyms and all of that. And then about two years ago, I got back into the gym and I realized how out of shape I let myself get. And now I'm not that anymore. I'm very much in shape and I'm very much doing weightlifting, cardio, things of that nature. And that helps my own self-esteem which helps combat anxiety because sometimes a lot of the anxiety comes from, I wouldn't say like imposter syndrome, but like feeling like a loser or a failure in life. And, but looking at myself and saying, no, I've made these strides, these accomplishments, I'm taking better care of myself. That just helps alleviate um, anxiety and um, recognizing that I have the problem, but not recognizing that it is me. It's just something that I have, but not wholly identifying with, oh, I have anxiety. Like, cause in the past I used to recognize the anxiety and give it power over me. Like I can't do that. My anxiety is just too bad to now saying I have anxiety, but I can still do this. The anxiety is not going to hold me back. It's just going to maybe make it a little bit more difficult for me to get through it, but I can still do it. So anxiety, you can screw off because I'm going to do it anyways. And that gives that anxious feeling and that anxiousness less power over me. So the combination of medication, taking care of myself physically, mentally with hobbies and things like that, and just recognizing the anxiety and not giving it the power has helped me move forward to be 
by far a less anxious individual. But when we talk about uh, seasonal adaptive disorder, seasonal adjustment disorder, um, sad, you know, I try and keep, again, as busy as possible during those months. And I try to stay outdoors as much during those months because a lot of the depression comes from the chemical imbalances and things of not getting enough sunlight, um, you know, because obviously the days are shorter, things of that nature. So I try and be outdoors as much as I can. I try to be as busy as much as I can. And I know a lot of people say winter months are the months that you go in and you become like a recluse inside your house because it's cold and everything like that. And I can't do that or else my seasonal depression will spike like crazy. And it puts me in a, uh, I wouldn't say like a suicidal place because I've never suffered from like suicidal thoughts. Like, yeah, I mean, who hasn't ever thought about just ending the life they're in and, you know, saying screw it at some point in their life. But I wouldn't say I've ever had like dark suicidal thoughts, like people who actually suffer from that. But if I do just stay indoors and don't keep myself busy and if I just sit on the couch and watch TV or sit on the couch, play video games and wait for the summer months to come, that doesn't help me out at all with my seasonal depression. It's just terrible. So you've given some things that you do to, um, you know, help combat the mood disorders that you feel and the anxiety that you feel. But I am curious, what is some of the, the bad advice that you've ever gotten aside from people saying, just get over it. I mean, anyone who's had any sort of sadness or depression, people have said, just, just get over it. We all know that that's like, Oh, I never thought of that kind of answer. Right. Uh, but I'm kind of curious if you ever gotten some impractical or poor advice. Oh, Oh yeah. And I, I like that you bring up the, just get over it because a lot of the times people bring up like, Oh, you just got the winter blues, man. It's like, get out of here. You don't even understand. Like I don't ever try and downplay anyone's mental, uh, mental fight with anything. Cause I don't understand it. I mean, there are people that in my own mind, I'll be like, do you really have that? Or are you just saying that for attention? But I never try to call anyone out for that crap. Like, cause who's, it's not going to do good for anyone anyways. Um, but when I hear like, Oh, you know, you just got the mental or the winter blues or something like that. I'm like, that doesn't help me out at all. You're just making me feel or in the past. Now I kind of just get more of like, no, that's not just what I have. But in the past, I'm like, oh, maybe they're right. And maybe I just, you know, have the winter blues. But um, terrible advice that I would get back in the day and that I would fall prey to is like, let's just go out for a drink, you know, like turning to like alcohol to dampen the mood of like seasonal depression. And, and yeah, it would help like, because in the time you're out with your friends, your buddies are having a beer, a drink here, a drink there, but then it goes down that slippery slope and the next morning you're even worse. Cause I mean, let's face it, alcohol is a depressant. So that's one, like, let's just go have a drink and talk about it. Like, no, let's, let's, uh, let's go have some tea or coffee and talk about it. How about that? Um, let's see other forms of like bad advice. You know, I, I tend to be someone who um, I don't give unsolicited advice. I only will really give advice to people if they come to me and they explain something and they ask me what would I do or something like that. And then I try and be very um, pragmatic when I'm giving my advice. And I see a lot of people out there give unsolicited advice to people when they shouldn't be. And there was one time, there was one thing you did that was very good for me. And, um, I, I won't ever forget it, but I, and I think I told you this before, but so I was going through my breakup about seven months ago. Um, and everyone had their advice to give to me, but no one listened to me. So everyone's giving advice. No one's listening. And then you uh, sometime had showed up to my work and you let me vent for like an hour 
and you listened and it made me feel so much better. So I think a lot of people, instead of going out there and giving all this unsolicited advice to people, just sit there and, you know, if they seem like they're down, be like, hey, you know, I'm here to listen to you if you ever want to talk and actually listen and listen with the intent to listen and the intent to understand and not listen to respond in a way of like, oh, I'm going to tell them what to, what to do. Because sometimes what, what you're going to tell them to do is what's going to work for you might not actually work for them. So my advice to you then is to uh, keep it up. Doing awesome. Um, I'm not sure if there's anything else that you want to talk about. I think we're close to an hour. Yeah, we are about uh, at an hour. Uh, and so I am not sure what else or other things you feel like are important to share. I feel like you've already shared quite a bit. No, no, I things that I have written down anyway. I, I definitely think that, um, you and asking these questions and me getting to explain them to someone rather than an empty room helps out a lot because in this podcast, I'm usually the one asking the questions of the individuals, but sometimes I want to speak and talk about me. Uh, it's like that country song. <laughs> um, what is it? Uh, we talk oh, about Oh, try that in a small town. That <laughs> no, not that one. <laughs> oh, okay. That was close though. But, um, uh, yeah, you know, so I want to say thanks for coming on and listening to me once again, talk about my mental health and, you know, um, I have a few more guests coming on this month, which I'm super excited about and getting to talk to them. And I think the biggest thing with uh, us going into these winter months and kind of the dreary seasons is get out there and, you know, communicate with people if you're having a rough, hard time and realize that you're going through your own battle alone, but everyone's going through their own battle and try and be understanding of people like that's something I've gotten better about, like trying to see why people act the way they are. Maybe they have something uh, that I don't see on the surface going on with them. So, um, no, man, I appreciate you coming on and uh, sharing those questions and getting this whole mental health uh, month of episodes started off. So I couldn't uh, thank you more. And I Wish you the best out there in Nebraska for these winter months. I know Nebraska has some pretty brutal winters, right? That's correct. Yeah, you're in the cold, flat area, so you're windy and cold. And you guys get a lot of snow out there? Yeah, don't worry. I'll be calling you for uh, warm thoughts and kisses when it's negative 26 again. <laughs> I, I bet. Like... A lot of people think Utah winters are harsh and I'm like, we get snow and we get cold, but we don't have anything on some of these flat prairie land places that get these super ultimate freezes and wind and all that. Like, ugh. you know, I don't know if I could live in one of those places. Me neither. <laughs> You're like, yeah, I don't think you could. No, not you, me. I don't think I could live here either. It's, it sucks. Here's a question for you. Oh, shit. Okay. Does your mental health... Because um, you've lived in multiple different areas across the United States. You've lived in Utah, Texas, Nebraska. And I want to say you lived in like Tennessee or something. At uh -huh. Once, yeah. Does where you live have an effect on your mental health? Are you asking me personally? Yes. Okay. Sorry, I wasn't sure if this was a plural you or not. I, I think we, uh, speaking academically, they've done studies and found that suicide rates are higher in certain states. And I think like North Dakota is one of them. It's yeah, way far cold, north. Colder states and states where it rains a lot. Yeah, and I would imagine that is due to a lot of the, maybe some of that seasonal stuff going on and just the fact of lack of sunlight, vitamin D, and all that crazy uh, imbalances that can go on with it. But did did you yourself find that, like, your mental health was great in Utah, okay in Tennessee, okay in Texas, terrible in Nebraska, or so, good in Nebraska, terrible in Texas? 
Right. Well, for me, it's not about the weather. It's more so about, you know, being thousands of miles away from people. So that's one of the hardest aspects is having very little to no social support. I mean, I, I don't talk to anybody anymore that I was friends with even in Texas. And I was there for almost two full years. And so for me, that's the biggest thing. It's not as much, you know, I lived in relatively decent sized places, stuff to go do places to eat sites to see. Um, it wasn't that I didn't have hobbies or other things that I could do with my spare time. It was more so, you know, when you're having a hard time, you're just stuck with it and you can go out and do things, but you know, that's only a coping bandaid. It doesn't make the problems go away. So if you're feeling lonely or isolated or heartbroken and you go out and do stuff, like I'd go do a lot of photo stuff when I was in Texas, but you get back home and those problems are still there. And so for me, it was, wasn't as much about the weather. It wasn't as much about the environment in general. It was more so about the aspect of isolation. We tend to ignore just how important being social is because we evolved as a social species. And so it's, impossible to live and not be social. So, uh, yeah, for me, that was the biggest factor nothing to do with the weather, nothing to do with the time of year, everything to do with no social support. Gotcha. And that, that makes sense. Um, I tend to think like, I don't know how people do it. You see those YouTube channels of nomadic people that go out and live in the woods by themselves. And I, I'm like, are you guys actually doing that? Or are you just piecing together um, footage, editing it over the span of a week and then saying you're out there for years on end. Because I remember watching this um, episode of, not Survivor, it was called Alone. It's a, sh it's a reality show that um, dabbles in dropping off people that have high expertise in survival in um, situations where they have to fend for themselves. And... Um, one of them was up in the northern tundra of Canada and they dropped off this whole plethora of people. They were, um, one was a doctor, one was a stay-at-home mom, one was this hippy-dippy person, a special forces person, an avid hunter, all these people with, like I said, they all have backgrounds or they're at least hobbyistic in the survival life. And the one that I had picked, I was like, oh, he's going to make it was the special forces Navy SEAL dude. He lasted like three or four days and he was like, I'm done. I can't do this. I cannot deal with not having people around me. He's like, cause whenever he worked, he was in his units and he had his family and all that. So I think that's one thing that's very important to recognize as a pe uh, person is people are very, we're social creatures by habit and to deny ourselves of that is detrimental. Well, we actually have a lot of, I mean, I always say this, uh, maybe awesome isn't the right word or interesting, but interesting is the one that works. There's actually a lot of interesting research on the way that isolation and COVID impacted overall mental health. And it wasn't very good as you'd probably guess. I think the scariest number, at least that I came across was that one in four people in that sweet middle demographic of 18 to 25 had suicidal ideation. And so we know just how important, you know, uh, social interaction actually is. And that was unfortunately one of the ways that we learned how important it is, was through the great experiment of 2020. Yeah. I think back on that. Um, and I, I look at how much COVID affected me in my mental health and my mental state. That's when I really, um, you know, I thought my job was super protected and then they shut down the education system. It was like, Oh, what are we going to do now? And just that isolation and everything and all of that. Yeah. It was, uh, like you said, this is a great experiment on the human species because before that, I don't think, I mean, I, I know there had been lockdowns and isolation and stuff with um, in regards to pandemics before, like the Spanish flu and things of that nature. But I don't know how uh, isolated they actually got. And it, 
thankfully, I guess we at least had social media to reach out to people, but that can also be super detrimental as well. Well, it's a whole other argument for a whole other day. <laughs> it is. Well, on that note, I think we are going to wrap this one up. So everyone out there, um, thanks again to Alex for coming on the show. Um, Alex, can you explain real quick why I like there's a reason I asked you to come on the show and explain this. And it's because you have a background in. Oh, I thought it was because I was so handsome. Well, that's one of the reasons, but you also yeah. have a background. Yeah. So my background is in, was well, formally in applied behavioral analysis using fMRI. Uh, but I honestly haven't used an fMRI or MRI in a good four or five years. Um, so right now I work with students at UNL and I work with students at uh, the local community college out here. Mostly I guess it's because I not, not just know about, but I actually teach the class in abnormal psychology and mental health. And so, uh, yeah, that's, I've been not necessarily trained in psychiatry, but I have been trained in, again, what's called applied, cog- applied behavioral analysis. Which is basically like going to a therapist. Yeah. And I mean, above being one of my very good friends that I've had for a long time and understanding me, I think you always have very good insight on anything when it comes to mental health or situations like that. So I always try and uh, get you involved in these types of subjects because I always have a lot of... uh, interest in what you think about these things so that's why we asked him on and i hope you guys uh listen to a couple more of these episodes that will be coming up this month with some people um and how they cope with their mental health because here we are in november and we're going through um that darker drearier time especially after the holidays are over you know we get november thanksgiving december christmas but then january comes around and it's just white gray slush all over on the ground But to end this, be happy, humble, and humorous, and we will catch you on the next one. Thanks, Alex. You're welcome.